We have a question here that hopefully both of you will be able to have input on. Um, am I right in thinking that Jerry Hutch was charged before Dowdle became a witness? And was he charged because of what was said on the tapes? Or do you think there is more evidence that we haven't heard yet? We've covered some of this already in that, yes, he was charged before uh, before Dowdall, uh was giving uh, any evidence. And it was in relation to the tapes. Uh, what was the second part of the question? Uh, it was, or do you think there's more evidence that we haven't heard yet? Well, there's two weeks left in the trial, so there may well be more evidence. Um, I, I do suspect that we've heard a large bulk of it, 99.9% of it, but we don't know what's what's yet to come. Uh, as Mick already mentioned, there may be other witnesses. Mick, you have something you want to say? Well, I'm just wondering, has there been that much mobile phone traffic evidence or what the, gu- the guards call cell site analysis? So that might be something you know that might show that they're mobile phones and they may argue that they're mobile phones. I don't think that's really... There hasn't been that much technical evidence really in that respect, has there? I think a lot of it is just being accepted through the book of evidence. But I mean, it was mentioned that there was cell site analysis done in relation to uh, trying to corroborate Dowdall's claim that he met Jerry Hutch in the park in Whitehall. And uh, I remember Brendan Graham saying to him, I can call this person as a witness. I don't propose to do so, but I can do it if you want in order. Uh, I think it was kind of accepted to just he could he could read out uh, the analysis of what the findings were without having to call this person as a witness. So that's that's what happened in that case. And it was interesting what we found out in relation to that because uh, they were able to corroborate that. It's out of claim, for example, that he got a phone call from Patsy Hutch's wife uh, shortly after uh, Eddie Hutch was murdered. Um, yet it, uh, the analysis showed that he was in Navin Road near his home or at home at the time that he alleges he met Jerry Hutch and the so-called confession happened. Um, so there's there's a lot of really interesting analysis in relation to that, but it doesn't sound like we're going to get that person on the stand, that expert on the stand, unless something happens in the interim. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some technical evidence in that regard. Uh, you know, just to give an analogy, every senior counsel runs the case the way they see fit. It's almost like you know, a football manager, you know, they can have formations and they can go, right, I want this bit of evidence first and we'll do it this. So... Brendan Grant may have other, or sorry, Sean Glan for the state may have other evidence he wishes to, to bring in. It's entirely up to him. So we are somewhat at a disadvantage because we don't know. But, you know, I, I just wouldn't be surprised if there was some CSA uh, uh, cell site analysis evidence to come about people being in various locations or whatever. So that's it's up to Mr. Glan, really. Okay, very good. Well, uh, we've been in the sort of technical uh, area of this trial for a little while now, so we might get to um, one here about Jerry Hutch's demeanour. Um, I'm trying to visualise him. How close is he to Dowdle? Does he make eye contact with Dowdle? Any expressions or display of emotion of any kind? Is he dressed in a suit? Does he interact with his co-accused or Brendan Graham in any way? Uh, well, the three of us could probably put into this, but uh, Paul, you've been there often enough to get a, a reasonable insight into them, man. What are your, uh, what are your thoughts? An important preface is that I'm not a body language expert. <laughs> but, uh, oh, come now. Uh, you, you find yourself in this uh, looking a lot at, at, at Jerry Hutch, John Dowd, all the people involved, and uh, just out of interest. Um, and obviously, this person is interested as well. Uh, I, I think he had about three or four interchangeable outfits. So sometimes he'd come in in a uh, blazer, uh, white shirt, and then sometimes it was like a it was some sort of bluey greenish jumper so sometimes he'd be more casual than others like he, he, jerry hutch would be quite formal on some days and casual on other days i don't know if he was thinking in advance of what about what he was going to wear but it was roughly the same three or four uh, outfits uh over the course of the whole trial he's quite casual and calm throughout he just sits there 
um, oftentimes sits back in the chair and kind of has his arm resting on, on the side of the seat. He actually brings with him a, a little cushion. I've noticed this a few times. He brings a little cushion out with him. We're all sitting on these hard chairs. Jerry Hutch brings out a cushion for himself. Uh, he's allowed to do that. Um, but he's very calm and and we've seen him laughing and joking with Jason Bonney and uh, with uh, Paul Murphy who are sitting next to him and we've seen him uh, smiling at some of the things that he's heard and just very casual and chill for someone I suppose accused of murder as opposed to the witness Jonathan Dowdall who was quite tense the whole way through and never looked at anybody kept his head down the entire time Jerry Hutch I've mentioned this already kept looking at Jonathan Dowdall kept his eyes fixed on Jonathan Dowdall and when the transcripts were playing he was looking at the transcripts you know very very calm and collected uh, it seems yeah look I mean he, he is allowed to confer with his legal team and, it, and whenever the, the sessions end, they do, conf, you know, they do go and talk to each other. But he does look, you know, he does look, I've never, I haven't really seen him look agitated. He, he's very, uh, he's a very calm person. You can see that he's very, and he's very studious. And he, he, he's, he you know, he's obviously concentrating on what's going on, but he, he doesn't, I've never seen him, you know, lose the head. He's always very calm and dead on. I can't. I, I, at times, he couldn't help himself. Or just in thinking about this, I can recall a kind of an incident where Dowdall was talking about. Um, he was being asked about the incident where he tortured Alex Hurley, and uh, Alex Hurley had said uh, that Dowdall um, said he was in the IRA, and Dowdall kind of responded in the courtroom saying, "Yeah, but he also said I was in the UDA or UVF or something like that." And that Jerry was just start laughing like audibly like laughing out loud in the court like oh so it's just you know that that kind of gives you an indication of like and he was openly laughing at the witness uh didn't really seem to care too much about what people around him thought uh he, he was just reacting in real time so he's very very calm yeah it was quite interesting even just from the day that i was in there as well because obviously you're in a slightly surreal situation of being sat eight feet from someone that you're you know is such a public figure and in, in an infamous sense and you know, I, I suppose it's a, a kind of product to the fact that you can't be constantly on edge or or stressed or, you know, concerned for your well-being throughout a two and a half month trial. Like you're just going to have to go through the, the the rigmarole of it quite a lot as well. And I think the, the contrast to Dowdle's was quite striking in the sense that Dowdle is by the very nature of cross-examination um, in a state of constant stress. So, you know, the the the, the contrast of the two men was, was very interesting anyway to me. Um Okay, well, we've had uh, we've had one in here in relation to uh, Jonathan Dowdle again. Um, do you think Jonathan Dowdle will end up in witness protection? Um, that's a fairly succinct one. Um, Mick, I'll go to you. Yeah, I do. I'd be shocked if he didn't. So just the, the background is he's obviously a state witness, but he is being considered for the witness security program. Uh, and from people, from talking to people who would have a knowledge of this, or of the system, shall we say, not this specific case, they would be shocked if he didn't get admitted to the witness security program. So then it's just a question of what happens to him. There's a very small chance that they could he could be relo- he will be relocated, but there's a very small chance he could be relocated relocated to Ireland. But it's more likely, much more likely, he will be relocated to uh, a country outside Ireland, probably an English language speaking country. But and again, uh, not America because Americans don't accept foreign witness protection people scheme 
they never have not just Irish ones but anyone so it'll have to be somewhere else that could be anywhere but yeah no I, I'd say it's 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 a nailed on certain he will be accepted into the witness security program okay we've had a DM here uh come in that might be applicable here uh will social media make it more difficult for Jonathan Dowdle to start a new life as opposed to someone like Charlie Bowden in the 90s I don't think it will there are plenty of people on the with the security program. I can think of one person who's very high profile who uh, is overseas in the witness security program and you know they're they're grand. So I I don't think so. Look, you do have to it, I, I mean the court did hear this that it's you start again, it's year zero. And that's what Dowdall and whoever goes with him will have to do. And they'll have to be very disciplined about who they talk to. But that's up to them. And you know, whether being found I you know, I, I think whatever state agency overseas overseas is involved in this, I think they'd be well experienced in it, just like Guardi here experienced in witnesses here. So I, I don't think there'll be any major problem. I think he realizes, you know, he has to start again and he, ha- he has to cut all ties. All right. We've heard a lot of the trial and nearly all the reported details are about Dowdle and Hutch, but there are obviously two other guys on trial at the same time. How much has been heard of their involvement? Now, Paul, obviously we, we spoke very briefly about a, an aspect of that earlier, but you might want to give us a bit of a sense of what might be coming next. We've pretty much heard almost everything about their involvement. Uh, their trial it was significantly shorter than, than the trial uh, against Jerry Hutch, although they're all being heard together but we had about a week's worth of evidence uh maybe two weeks uh in in relation to the evidence against jason bonnie and paul murphy and it's effectively this that their that vehicles that are registered to them are captured on cctv in key places at key times um that is at the buckingham village area in the inner city where the convoy of vehicles allegedly met up uh, along with the Ford Transit van that was allegedly used in the hit. And then there is CCTV footage of uh, vehicles registered to them at the St. Vincent's GAA Club, uh, which is just out from the Regency Hotel. And that's where there is footage of the hit team involved running through a little alleyway and coming up into this car park and getting into these vehicles. And the state is alleging that Paul Murphy was driving uh, one of them, uh, a taxi, which is registered to him, and that uh, Jason Bonney was driving uh, the BMW. Now, both men have given their accounts to Gardy when they were interviewed, and this was brought up again in the court, uh, as to their movements on the day and what they were doing. Paul Murphy basically was saying he was driving his taxi around Dublin. Uh, He can't remember every single thing that he did that day, but he remembers going to the shop and uh, I think purchasing a sandwich and reading the newspaper um, and that he might have gone by the Regency Hotel for for a look, I think it was. Um, And then in relation to Jason Bonney, he says that he was working on a house uh, along with another number of individuals they were working on 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 a house and that's where he was and he said that he heard about the regency hotel on the radio uh did acknowledge that the bmw is registered to him but maintains that he wasn't driving it at the time that other people did have access to the vehicle but he was the one that primarily did drive that vehicle um there's meant to be cctv footage uh of, of these men in in certain situations uh close to the regency but there is no specific piece of footage that uh, necessarily identifies either of them at the Vincent Chihaya car park other than the sequence of events leading up to and then their vehicles ending up there on CCTV. So there's a lot of CCTV evidence primarily in relation to both of them uh, individuals. And they both said that they had known the Hutch family, they had connections there 
but nothing more than just friendly connections. Um, I th- I think we've heard 90% of the case against them. Obviously, both of them have pled not guilty. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, there's meant to be now evidence in relation to uh, an alibi, which uh, Jason Bonney has, has supposedly um, brought forward. Uh, so we'll hear a bit more about that. But we've, we've heard pretty much the case against both of them to date. Okay, thanks for that. Um, just a quick uh, kind of procedural one, I guess. Um, Paul, actually, this, you might know a little bit more about this, given that you're kind of boots on the ground. Um, when will the trial start, start back up after the holidays and what time does it usually start? Uh, any idea on the agenda once Dowdle is finished? I guess we've covered the, the latter part of that, but um, in terms of the, the, the logistics, where are we? Yeah, we're back on the 11th, Wednesday the 11th. Um, it will start at 11 a.m., um, we were in court 17. We've moved up there as a result of Dowdall. I don't know whether it's now going to move back downstairs again uh, to court 11. I, I suppose I'm going to find that out on the day. Um, but uh, other than that, 11 a.m. on the 11th. Very good. Um, and just one final philosophical one uh, <laughs> from Des Caters on Twitter, as if you're not running to the ground enough at this stage. Um, does crime pay? Mick, you're uh, this. This will give you some hinterland to that's, that's gallop into. A Mick O'Toole question. Absolutely, <laughs> it does to a certain group. Yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely no doubt about that. I can like, we were all like, look at the Kinnings. Their empire is worth a billion euro. You cannot tell me that Daniel Kinning has not profited from, and Christie and Christopher and all of them have not profited from that criminality. Say there's uh, the the group in the Clondalkin area of West Dublin here getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We know that they're heavily involved. We know that a couple of years ago, it was about four million quid was seized by the Guardi down the country. And they probably that was their their profits for a week. That was what they were laundering in one week. So a very, very big, big organisation. Now, look, there are people who end up getting sucked into crime street people, street dealers, that sort of stuff. And, you know, people go to jail and, you know, that sort of thing. But there's a significant cohort of people who are making serious money from crime. And you know what? Most people haven't got a clue who they are. They keep a real low profile. Sometimes they get caught, they risk getting caught, but others, they just make their money and make an awful lot of money. And then there's white collar crime and everything as well. So, you know, of course, you know, there are significant financial rewards for all, you know, gangland crime and white collar crime. So, yeah, yeah, it, I mean, there's an awful lot of rich people who got rich from crime. It does have a way of catching up to you eventually, though, doesn't it? I mean, I, I kind of view it almost like uh, maybe it's not true of everyone, but it's it's like a cancer it creeps up on you eventually. Like with Daniel Kinahan, had he maybe just left alone, had he not gotten so personal and got into this feud he probably would still be able to live his life uh, as a as a renowned boxing promoter and enjoy his millions, but he couldn't leave it alone. And that tends to happen with a lot of these criminal figures that eventually it catches up with them in one way or another. So it might pay maybe for a period of time, but it, it certainly has a way of catching up with people. Now, some are smarter than others. I mean, certainly his father, Christy Kinahan, um, he has him to thank really for... for the success uh, and and if it wasn't for this gangland feud, uh, Christy Kinahan probably could have retired into the sunset, couldn't he? Definitely. So, you know, is it hubris or is it whatever from Daniel? He brought a huge world of 
of pain on the, the 18 victims of the feud, on others who survived. But, you know, the leadership of the Canadian cartel uh, really got it in the neck, I think, because of his actions and the, the actions of people close to the late David Byrne in driving this feud forward. Like when you think about Operation Shovel, the first international operation against the Canadians was 2010, and they survived that relatively unscathed. This one is, look, you know, they're on the run. They're effectively, there's a $5 million bounty on their head. And, you know, that's, I think it's because of the feud and the, the criminality around that. So, yeah. I, I, I actually have a question. <laughs> this is a question that it just, it just piques my curiosity that, like, right, we have Jerry Hutch charged with murder. Um, but to my knowledge... Uh, it, and I'm just wondering what the precedent it is, and this, as I think Mick would know about this because he's covered other cases, that's why I'm asking it. To my knowledge, he wasn't interviewed about this, about the Regency, because he got off the plane, he was charged with murder, that was it. So, like, you know, for example, with Graham Dwyer and Joe O'Reilly, you know, there were interviews with Gardy, and a lot of that forms the evidence against them. Just, he was never questioned about it. He was just, he was charged with it, and he was never questioned with it. And so I'm just curious about that, like, What's the precedent for that? Have there, have there ever been other cases where someone's charged with murder and they were never actually questioned by the Guardian about it, ever? There have, yeah. Um, it, it happens more than you would think. Essentially what happens here is the guard sent a file to the Director of Public Prosecutions and the Director of Public Prosecutions, the clues in the title, directs guards to prosecute X. So not being held hostage to fortune, but I think Freddie Thompson flew into Northern Ireland went over the border, stopped at a hotel in North Dublin. Assistant Commissioner Paul Cleary, as he is now, he was, I think he was the detective inspector in Kevin Street and senior investigating officer, arrested him in the toilets when he was, when Fred Thompson was in the, in the, in the toilets, right? And brought him, and they charged him, right? And he was brought for, because the DPP had directed that he be charged. And I, I can't remember his name, but the fellow who's also convicted of the Dahi Douglas murder, uh, he was extradited from England, I recall, to be charged. So, it, Lee Calvin, yeah. So, he wasn't questioned. I don't think Freddie Thompson was questioned. I think it was he was arrested. So, you can be arrested for questioning, you can be arrested for the purpose of charge, right? And these guys are just arrested for the purpose of charge. So, it was an extra. Now, he was extradited. The only technical thing I'll say is. You can be extradited for any offence, offences that carry more than a year in prison, so indictable offences. But it has to be for charge. You cannot be extradited for questioning. So whenever you hear anybody has been extradited, you know it's because the, the prosecution authorities have decided to charge me. Let me give an example. Imre Arrakis went the other way. The other day he was let, released from custody in Ireland and he was extradited to Lithuania to be charged with murder and questioned about murder. So it has to be for the purpose of charge. So look, you know what? It happens quite a lot. People do. I, I mean, there's a couple of others. So the guards, yeah, and I'm just thinking, sorry, what, so the guards basically have no choice. I mean, they had no choice. I mean, they would probably have only loved to have questioned Jerry Hutch, but they couldn't because he was out of the jurisdiction and the only way they were getting him back was charging him and they can't question him now. And more important, yes, you're absolutely right. They have no choice and also... Because the direction has been given to charge him, they can't question him. Because yeah, there's another case they can't saying. really go into because of subjudice. But once they land in Ireland, it's for charge. You can't be questioned about anything. So the guards' hands are tied. The director directs a charge, and that's it. And the guards enforce it. So there's no questioning. So it's a different phase. 
But I can, you know, it's all coming back to me. I can think of several people who have been extradited for charge. You know, that's it. Yeah, I, I don't want to labor the, the point, but I just, it, there's some very obvious questions that have never been asked of him. That, you know, an innocent person, um, any person would, would be happy to answer. And he, the, the thing is, he's not he's not legally required to. So obviously we understand why he hasn't had to answer the questions. But like, you know, where were you on the day? You know, stuff like that. He actually hasn't had to answer that question. I just find that fascinating. Anyway. Well, well the guards completed their investigation, sent the investigation file to the DPP. DPP looked at it with mm. the recommendation that he be charged. DPP looked at it and said, charge him. So that's why uh, they, they charged him. They realised yeah. he was out of the country, so they went to the High Court, got a European arrest warrant for him. So it was an APB effectively all over Europe. And as we know, he was arrested in August last year, last year in Fuengirola and then sent back. So that's the process. So it's a judicial process. The, the, it's a judicial process from the moment the direction is received. It's not an investiga- investigative process. It's judicial and the guards have to you know, enforce that. Just thought that was worth talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, you're dead right. You're dead right. You've completely made me redundant, Paul. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been uh, lovely catching up with you lads again, presuming there's no more for any more, seeing as we've been doing this for uh, nearly an hour at this stage, not trying to let anyone peek behind the curtain, but this is where we are. Thank you very much to all of our questioners. We really value your input and, and how passionate people are about the case and the few more widely. We're happy to be able to answer what we can here. And yeah, we will be back to you in the very near future as, as and when the case resumes. So thanks very much, lads. Thank you. 